Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. As I speak, the Morgan Stanley headlines drop across the Bloomberg terminal. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Yaman Onoran to get the top and bottom line. Yaman. Hi. Um, well, you know, this is um, kind of looking uh, uh, gloom. Uh, that first look, uh, net revenues are down. Uh, wealth management is unchanged. Um, that's that's similar to Bank of America's Merrill Lynch. You know, they're they're both big in wealth management. They didn't ha- they didn't change or grow or shrink either. Um, fixed income and equities uh, revenues are are down uh, pretty. Uh, Pretty big, twenty um, percent in equities, and you know Morgan Stanley is the is the market leader in in uh, equity trading in the world, and um, you know, but everybody in the last couple of days that's been reporting has been reporting equities down, fixed yeah. income down, so that's not surprising. But um, you know, the big the bigger banks, the ones that are con- uh, universal like J P Morgan, Citigroup, uh, Bank of America, they had net interest income from their uh, consumer and, and commercial lending to fall back on. And that kept their, their, their revenues and, and their bottom line up. Uh, for banks like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, they don't. They're more uh, investment banking, and investment banking is down across the board this, in the first quarter. So uh, Morgan Stanley numbers are, are pretty, pretty low. Yaman, thank you. Yaman Onoram with the latest from Morgan Stanley. want to get to the Chinese data. If you're waking up this Wednesday morning, I'm sure it's the first thing you reached for, for many of you. GDP rising 6.4% for the first three months from a year earlier, matching last quarter's pace and beating economist estimates. On the other data points, factory output in March jumping 8.5% from a year earlier, much higher than the forecast of economists we surveyed. And for retail sales, expanding 8.7%, investment up 6.3% year to date. So some mild improving risk appetite, I would say, cross-asset this morning. Here in New York to discuss, I'm pleased to say, is Jerry Fowler, Aberdeen Standard Investments multi-asset strategist. Good morning to you, Jerry. Your view on the Chinese data just to start, what's your take? Well, the data certainly looks very impressive on the surface. Uh, It's probably not quite as good as it looks, but nonetheless, it's a lot better than people expected. And I think that's really key. Uh, You know, people have underestimated the ability of China to get its economy going. We were probably a little early to start getting long China last August when they started stimulating. Uh, but, uh, you know, as you would expect, six to nine months later, that stimulus is coming through. And really, you know, it, when they started doing stimulus, it, they're not the kind of government that sort of starts and then goes, oh, we're giving up, we can't do it. You know, once they started, they were going to make sure it works. We are starting to see that. The big question now is whether that stimulus um, is, as people expect, Uh, only impacting the domestic economy and not so useful for the rest of the world. I am of the opinion it probably will still have relatively significant spillover effects to the rest of the world, maybe not as much as 2016. But what's interesting about China is is because it's such a centrally controlled economy, the private sector takes its lead from the government. And the private sector has been crushed over the last couple of years. Sentiment has been very weak, but there are signs that that private sector sentiment can turn. And if it does, you can actually get an exacerbated acceleration in China that does spill out 
out onto the into the industrial sector that impacts the rest of the world. So, Jerry, this is critical because it's not just Chinese markets that have rallied through 2019. European markets, the price action there, we've had a really, really good start to the year. There are hopes that this does spill over. This morning, the German finance ministry, I believe, cut the growth forecast to just 0.5% for this year. Are you confident that we can get some positive spillover into places like Germany? Because it sounds like you are. We are. So a lot of the uh, European weakness, as people um, really will know, was one-off events in the last quarter of last year. And because it's a big current account surplus region, particularly Germany, they rely on the external sector. And the external sector has been very weak. So I'd expect that with that external sector starting to pick up, that you will get some of that spillover into into, uh, Europe. Um, And what's interesting is that we'd positioned in emerging markets and Chinese equities for the rally. We've got some emerging market local currency bonds, we'd stayed relatively clear of Europe and actually maintained a fairly significant short euro position. Uh, A lot of that to do with Italian risks and the weakness in the economy. But recently, our portfolios have actually been adding call options on European equities. Uh, Partly, you know, call options because we're slightly nervous that it may not come through. Um, But also, you've just got such low volatility levels that even though we've had a bit of a market rally matching the rest of the world, Europe is the catch-up trade. European equities are the catch-up trade uh, for for an improving global trade environment. Can you push that through view through the FX market as well? Because I'm just wondering how expensive call options would be at the moment on euro dollar when so many people are positioning at the moment for downside protection on the greenback. How do you have that view in yeah, FX? Yeah, so Europe, we do still maintain that short euro position, um, uh, but it is quite crowded. Uh, it's not excessive, but basically, you know, everyone with real money invested globally is funding it out of euros. And I think that uh, while the euro um, may experience some short-term optimism and go up a little bit, it's still at such a structural yield disadvantage to many other uh, markets. So unlike 2016, uh, where the acceleration really caught the enthusiasm and a lot of money flowed into Europe and the euro went up nearly 10%, that's not what we're expecting this time. It'll come through inequities. You mentioned enthusiasm. There was a February not too long ago where there was a lot of enthusiasm and the VIX of the quiet here, 12.04 with an 11 handle on VIX in the last day. Are we just going to see a redux of that where we unwind all this quiet rapidly? Yeah, the the vol is, um, I think, incredibly hard to price in this environment because uh, we are getting late cycle. There is a lot of corporate leverage. At times, there can be a lot of investment leverage as well. And you really need to fluctuate from a low vol environment, justifiably, to a high vol environment, justifiably. So, you know, you in this type of environment, you should have an upward sloping vol curve uh, uh, because longer dated volatility should naturally be a lot higher than it is at the moment. But for the moment, it's still risk on. People can invest. That low vol is, is justified in the short term. I mean, it's justified. What, what indicator to, do you use to try to get out front of a VIX change? Uh, we don't specifically look Smoke, for indicators mirrors, to forecast crystals, the VIX. But crystals? Yeah. Crystals is, <laughs> Swing some crystals across our chest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the... the we have a short-term timing indicator, and that includes um, the market sentiment, where things like RSI go into that, mm-hmm. but also investor sentiment and investor positioning. And it's part of the reason why, despite this extraordinary rally, we are not yet ready to sell risk. We are reducing risk, uh, but the, the, we're not likely to be short anytime soon. Market sentiment has bounced back, bounced back very strongly, but investor sentiment and investor positioning have only just come off their lows. They're mid-range, far mm-hmm. from excessive. And under those circumstances, you would need an exogenous shock for Vol to really resurface at the moment. Like Barcelona winning. <laughs> an exogenous shock. Well, like that, that wasn't a shock for anybody. <laughs> it wasn't a shock. 
Did you well, see Juventus? I, I was I, I was going to save that for one thing you need to know. We can do that. We can do that later in the program. We can talk about the stock price of Juventus over in Italy. Oh, as what well. did it do? Down aggressively. Aggressively. Down aggressively. <laughs> Dino Ronaldo. Ajax also. Ajax also publicly traded. Ajax up aggressively. Yeah. So we can talk about the financial market aspect of European football a little bit later in the program, if you like. Another book of the summer. Last year I did two books of the summer, one on the FBI, Garrett Grath, and also Robert Kaplan's magnificent treatise on the South China Sea. This year, Raghurajan on this, his scream for community. And a new book, Jonathan Gruber, who we'll talk about, and Simon Johnson in studio with us from MIT, Jumpstarting America. Before we get to that, you've got to do the mother of all victory laps. Your book, 13 Bankers, more than any other book, nailed the financial crisis and it was about one paragraph and i think chapter five where you said this is the point where we leveraged up are we doing it again there's a real danger tom that we may be doing it again including in the shadows it was last time it was a, it was a different shadows I, I agree with that but we've undermined the financial stability oversight council we've taken our eye off what's going on outside the main banking system it always starts in the shadows it always infects the main banking system that's where things go wrong we didn't see 30 people at aig coming did we so the shadows there's like a shop out there that's going to get us in derivative trouble i think that's nature of shadows you don't know it could be in london that's where aig financial products we blame that on pharaoh yeah could, could be yeah. some could be could be somewhere else it's very hard to say you want to bring in jump-starting america john i think it's really interesting i just love how it's your book of the summer it only appeared on my desk this morning how did you read it so quick here's why this is really really important i lived what simon johnson and jonathan gruber remember which is igy you know, Steely Dan, Daniel Fagan, 1957, Sputnik. And John, it's a primal scream to stop apologizing for science. Simon Johnson, bring this in from MIT, those little gray buildings, Harold Edgerton, Killian of another time. We've lost that magic in Washington, haven't we? We've lost the magic. I think that's exactly what happened. In the 1940s and 50s, science was magic, and people believed in it, and they realized that you could create really good jobs through investing in science. And we, we, we've taken our eye off that. We've forgotten since the 1960s. Need to get it back. It, John Farrell, this is so important. There was a little paperback in our living room from a guy named Crick and a guy named Watson, and they were British, and they were strange, and they were different. They were British, and they were strange. And that's what this is about, the double helix. And I read it cover to cover it. Way too young Simon, age. Simon, more broadly, and then we'll sort of dig our way a little bit deeper. It's about the success of America and how it hasn't been shared. Can we just talk about that a little bit more? Because the numbers for the U.S. economy, they look terrific compared to the rest of the developed world, including Europe for that matter. What's happening beneath the surface that we need to address? Well, that, that, that's the key question, right? So headline numbers, pretty good, definitely better than other, other places, including Europe. But across America, there's disappointment and there's fear about the future of work. When Amazon put out its HQ2 out for bid, 230 cities, pretty much everyone in America raised their hand and said, yeah, we'd like those jobs. We'd like to be transformed. We're going to be part of the tech future. What did Amazon do? What's the rest of the private sector doing? They're going to places that already have a lot of talent, New York City, although they got turned down there, and Washington, D.C. We need to spread more opportunity around the country and create, How? A, new, well, create a new hubs. So investing in science, 
Decide on your science uh, priorities. For example, Senator Lamar Alexander is out this week saying we should invest in the nuclear future. Fine, if you want to do that. Where are you going to put it? Where are you going to have, where's the land available? Where's the talent available? I wouldn't go for the coast. Certainly not with that kind of technology. There are 102 candidates that we propose in our book. Other places, other cities in America that could do really well with tech. So let's talk about how much this could possibly cost. There's always a price to anything we want to do like this. And it sounds incredibly expensive to get these companies to say, you know what, I don't want to go to the coastal cities. We're going to go somewhere else. How do we do that? In practice. Well, you're absolutely right. We think it, it, it requires scale. You've got to overcome this chicken and egg problem. I don't want to go there because no one else is there. Yeah. Uh, you've got to bet big on some tech, new technologies. I mean, that's what China's doing. That's what, that's what we should be doing. We propose $100 billion investment in, in, in the book. That's a lot of money. I, I agree. But think about the rates of return. The social rate of return on it, this kind of investment is 50%. Human <clears throat> Genome Project, okay. we put in $3 billion. We get $6 billion back every year. Pittsburgh was flat on its back. You know, it was beyond flat on its back. Carnegie Mellon and the University of Pittsburgh dragged them out of the morass. It's led by universities. Those universities are out there right now. They're there. The, the academics in America is there to support this. Why can't we get the kids to move to name the Midwest city? Well, that's a great question. And you're absolutely right that one of the special features of the United States is we have really good universities exactly. spread across the country. What's missing is the jobs. What's missing is the jobs for the young people. When I talk to young people pretty much everywhere, they want to move to the East Coast or the West Coast at least to start their career, to break in, to build a reputation. You need a tech push. You need The science is expensive. That's an important point. But it's also a feature of, of the system. If you build the labs, if you make a big push, maybe it's on green energy. Maybe it's a new green energy. Who builds? Where's this money come from? That's what Donald Trump would say. <laughs> where's where's a hundred gazillion dollars going to come from? Well, the the, the big t tax cut we did uh, that uh, gave up some revenue. You could have used that revenue for okay. this. Uh, there, I, I look, I, it's a very high rate of return. What do, what do you do when you see very high rates of return in your private life? You think about borrowing, you think about investing, you think about how you get that capital right. back. That's what we're proposing here. I mean, the issue is if you're a total rock star, you've got a massive apartment in Sutton Place in Manhattan, and you're looking out on Cornell's Island technology thing there, and you're sitting there watching eight football games on Saturday, you really need an incentive to move to Dubuque, Right. Yes, you do. And, and young people will do it. Young people do it. Scientists, really? Scientists, <laughs> scientists, scientists, yes. If other people are going there, what, 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 what do towns of people want? They want to work and live around other towns of people. If you build the big science labs, if that's where you're doing your green energy or that's where you're doing the next phase of synthetic biology or that's yeah. where you're doing your, your big push on nuclear technology, the talented, smart scientists, the ambitious people will go there. When this you're watching Barcelona, are you looking out at the Cornell Tech Lab there? I can the kind of see it a little bit. Yeah, I, go, I was wondering see who you it. were talking about. My God, you got 8,000 square feet. You can see can JF. You stop causing you can trouble? See real, can you stop you can see, causing you can trouble? You can see him landing 747s <laughs> out of JFK. Simon, can we talk about how your work potentially complements and maybe even contrast with the work of Mariana Mazzucato of, of UCL. She also talks about the need for public-private partnerships. Why is this different? Why is it similar? Walk me through it. Well, well we completely agree with, with Mariana's point, which is that the public sector has made big commitments in the past to technology development. And, and a lot of that upside is done well for the private sector follow-on investments. Uh, Mariana tends to, to want to go with more government as an investor, more government as an owner of stock. We're, we're not there. We're, we're more about develop the hubs, build the real estate, get some of that appreciation of the value from the real estate and give that back to all Americans as a cash dividend. That's our view of the upside. What do you say back to people that say the government is very, very bad at making investments? 
Oh, I absolutely agree. Don't, don't let the government go into the commercial investment business. Bad idea. But what does the government – federal government is already one of the largest owners of real estate in, in, the, in the country. If you include yeah. the land out west, it's by far the largest. What, what happens when you do an Amazon-type proposal? That's about local government partnering with state, getting the real estate available. Uh, they've got to build some infrastructure. They've got to think – they think about geography as in okay. hub development. That's what we're proposing here. And it's the, on, and the time we've got left, this is critical. You mentioned President Trump through this. I'm going to make a general statement. He's not a fan of science. I think that's a general statement. How do we get away from the modern anti-science, the modern anti-elite that permeates? I mean, everybody wants their kid to go to MIT, but the fact is they don't want to support science. Absolutely right. Jobs. It's about more good jobs. This is a proposal that will give you more good jobs and spread it across America. Millions of Americans will benefit from that. Science did that for us in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. We need to go okay, back to but that. Okay, you, you had a great chapter on Lawrence Livermore Lab, okay, which was a miracle of our youth. Folks, it's out on the West Coast. A lot of You couldn't get in the door without a, a, a 4.0 and a PhD uh, in your back pocket. That's not America. What do you do for the rest of America that doesn't know differential equations? There's a lot of jobs in building the infrastructure for science and running the labs. Human Genome Project, average wage from the whole genomics industry, $70,000. 300,000 people work in that industry. That was a $3 okay. billion dollar investment by the federal are, government. Are you a fan of SpaceX and all you know, the astronauts from the private crew? Let the, if the private sector wants to do things like SpaceX and artificial intelligence, let them go for it. The government should be doing things that the private sector doesn't want to do, the things okay. that aren't so sexy, things that are more fundamental. When do I get 14 bankers? I just want a sequel to the crisis <laughs> so you can get out front of the next crisis. Are you and Quack on speaking terms? Yes, absolutely. He's my brother-in-law. When? Really? Yes, he's, he's, he's my wife's brother. I, very cool. It's a family I, I did, business. I did, it's a fam I'll say it's a family business. Uh, when do we get a sequel on... Instead of after the financial crisis, the before the crisis, Simon Johnson. We're, we're working on, on that and many other ideas. After you sell the moving rights to jumpstarting America. Jonathan Gruber, who's the real deal, folks. Jonathan Gruber, we didn't mention. John, he's someone who says, I'm actually going to propose. Unlike a lot of loudmouth economists, he was knee-deep in... Affordable Care Act and Romney Care, like actual do-things. I'm actually going to take this book home with me and read it. A lot of them Between end up on Juventus this shelf Loft. behind my desk in the office, but oh, I'm taking they? this one home. Simon Johnson there, MIT Sloan School of Management, Global Economics Professor. We're going to do Netflix now, and John's going to bring in our esteemed guest because, John, I avoid Netflix like the plague. To me, it's... Because you don't watch it? You don't like, like covering it, the company? It, no, I don't watch it because it's, it's, it's like generational. It's like a young thing. It's a young thing. I, I don't get it. I just, I totally don't. So get you're talking about every time I go there, they don't the service, not the stock, because yeah, the, stock's the service. Been every time I go there, they don't have what I want. That's what I know. What do you want? I go to uh, Apple Movies more. Okay. Uh, more. I go to Amazon Prime some. Yeah. And that you know, Apple Movies really covers a lot of it. I mean, it, and oh, and there's a new one, Criterion Channel. What is which that? Which is it's brand new. Filmstruck went out of business. All the old movies. So the people at Criterion ponied up. Here's what happened. AT&T bought Warner. AT&T yeah. said we got to cut costs, so they cut out Casablanca, essentially. Okay. Filmstruck went under, and Barbara Streisand and a bunch of other people jawboned it to where Criterion launched 
like eight days ago, subscribe to the Criterion channel so John Farrell can watch old World War II British movies. If I was in a media industry, I don't know if I'd be tailoring the content, curating my curating. library of content to your taste That would be true. That would be true. Let's I'm go to Netflix. I'm not sure how much money I can make from that. Geetha Raghunathan joining us now, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst. Geetha, really surprising. I think if we sat here yesterday and I said, you know what, Geetha, tomorrow I'm going to predict that forward guidance from this company isn't going to be great. I imagine you'd say, I think the stock's going to be a whole lot lower off the back of that. Why hasn't that happened? Yeah, so it was really a mixed report card, and it's 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 um, it's actually really um, strange that the that the stock has actually bounced back now, even with um, the the lighter than expected subscriber guidance for two Q. And I think what people uh, once investors really got time to digest the report, I think a couple of key takeaways. One is you know two Q is seasonally a little bit weak, um, and actually if you look, you know, the management did talk about churn from the uh, price increase, a 13 to 18% price increase that actually goes into effect for most of its subscribers in this quarter. And actually, what, what you would find is the implicit churn um, in those subscriber forecasts is actually lower uh, than when they increased prices in 2016 by a lower amount. Um, so actually, uh, demonstrates fairly significant pricing power. Um, and the other thing that one has to remember is that the 2Q content slate is actually a little bit light. Uh, it's really in the second half of the year that we see all their big ticket item shows uh, coming to the service. Looking forward, if it's not price that moves the dial, is it competition? And does any of this guidance contain new entrants into this market, Geetha? Yes, yeah, so uh, they did, um, you know, they were obviously asked a lot of questions about, you know, all of the uh, upcoming competition, the Disney Plus, the, the AT&T, the Apple service. Uh, and as always, they kind of downplayed the threat of new rivals. And if anything, they actually, uh, Reed Hastings kind of put a positive spin, um, saying that all of this new streaming competition is really a testament to the power of Internet TV, to the power of streaming. And it actually only yeah. accelerates the move away from linear. So if at all, the streaming pie is growing, and right. Netflix, Netflix is in a position to grab an even greater market share. Geetha, well said. But what's important here is their relative piece of the pie. Where is that going to be in five? years they're actually uh, so so one of the metrics that uh, uh, that management mentioned was um, you know they only have a two percent share of the global uh, internet traffic market so they're mm -hmm. still significantly underpresentated and I think what's really ironical is you know everybody's kind of been obsessing uh, about this Disney plus versus Netflix narrative I think what's what's going to be really um, uh, you know ironical in a way is um, that the Disney Plus service might actually end up benefiting Netflix. Um, you know, I think it's what's going to happen is with a $7 price point, it's actually going to end up accelerating the demise of the pay TV bundle. And more and more people are going to realize that, you know, they can just get Netflix, Disney Plus, and probably Amazon and Hulu yeah. um, and a $30 bundle. And, and that kind of, um, you know, com completes the package for them. Now, Geetha, thank you so much. Geetha Ramanathan with us, uh, with Bloomberg Intelligence on Netflix. Right now on Gridlock, she is Senior Vice President, Gridlock Analysis, Pimco, Libby Cantrell. 
joins us now. Is there any is there any legislation occurring in Washington, Libby? Uh, there is not any legislation that's probably going to be market moving from a big macro perspective. Yeah. But there, but there actually there now there are glimmers of bipartisanship um, that the media has not really focused on, such as. One of them is uh, uh, the SECURE Act, which is a retirement bill that's making its way through the House, will likely make its way through the Senate and could be signed into law in the next few months. So it is that there is, you know, there, there are glimmers of bipartisanship well, but in terms of, again, market moving legislation. No, not I don't, we should not be hopeful. Let's rip up the script. Roger Ferguson, the former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve System uh, with TIA Cref, has been heated to me in public and private conversation, Libby, about our need to not only adjust, tweak ERISA of 1974, but we need to, (coughs) excuse me, we need to revolutionize our retirement system. Is that the tone in Washington or is it a tweak kind of legislation? I mean, look, I think that um, expectations about, um, again, sort of big um, macro market moving legislation should be tempered. And so this is this is an example of more of, of the tweaking side, more yeah. of the incremental. Um, but 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 still, I mean, we have to you know, we have to give credit where credit is due. They are moving kind of the ball down the goal line. Um and in terms of, of, of trying to revolutionize retirement. Now, now Congress is never going to be kind of on the forefront of innovation. I think they're always going to be on the back, their back heels um, in lots of respects. But, but again, yeah. you have to give them credit that things, things are moving forward on this sort of important, um, you know, this okay. important area. The other thing that's come up about eight times in the last 10 days, folks, I've been on the road, it seems like four weeks. I literally woke up Saturday and literally didn't know where I was, Libby, is the great quality infrastructure of the third world nation nation, the United States of America. I don't want to review like the why it's a mess, but it's simple. Money solves it. Is the money out there to do infrastructure in Washington? Well, look, I think that is an ongoing debate right now. I mean, um, you know, the CBO is projecting that we're going to have trillion plus deficits um, starting in 2019 and and going forward. Um, I think that the money is there, um, I think many would argue the money is there because rates have continued to be low even in spite of these big deficits. I think it's the appetite. And this is where there is a big kind of disconnect on infrastructure. Um, even though lots of members of Congress like infrastructure, right. you kind of bring go- goodies back to your districts, and the president certainly likes to build things. I do think Senate Republicans especially are going to be very wary of a deficit finance sort of fiscal infrastructure package. So even though there is a lot of um, unanimity among right. American citizens that we need infrastructure improvements, I don't think we see infrastructure yeah. in this session of Congress. Libby, I want to go to one sentence of your recent report for PIMCO. If you're just joining us, Libby Cantrell of PIMCO uh, with us. And that is this will be a different primary season for the Democrats than we've ever seen. In what way do you mean that? Well, I think, um, well, a couple of things, and I think it's just important to, to keep in mind here, is that the Democratic primary season will look you know, much more similar to the, that of the Republicans in 2016 than it did for the Democrats in 2016, meaning that obviously it's going to be a very crowded field. Um, the, the, the rule changes that the Democratic National Committee have pursued means that the kind of the party officials, these so-called super delegates, will have much less influence over the ultimate nominee. And because of the way that delegates are going to be apportioned yeah. in the 
primaries on a proportional basis, not winner take all, means that, you know, much to the chagrin of I'm sure many people listening, that it means that the Democratic yeah. primaries are going to last longer. So we probably won't see a nominee, you know, until late spring or summer. And we may not even see a nominee until you actually get to the convention. Cool. And, uh, yeah, right, right. Like it could be like a real convention. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like a like a broker convention. Yeah, so, yeah. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be quite different, obviously, from 2016. And from a market's perspective, you know, I think that that means that things are more susceptible to headline risk, right? Because there's yeah. gonna be many d- competing different policies. Um, you know, there's clearly the progressive left is maybe go- going a little bit more left, and so I think the market will react and, and probably um, will have a little bit more volatility because of it. One final question: Do you assume then a move by Democrats to the middle? Or do they stay on a more liberal left tone? You know, I mean, it really, it's going to be, it's, it's, it's hard to predict. Um, agreed, agreed. The, we don't know. The way, that we're, the way that we're characterizing this with our clients, yeah. sort of Hunger Games of 2020, a really kind of fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. I think that objectively to win the general election, a Democrat would need to win Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and probably Florida. And I, I you know, my own view is having a real progressive <clears throat> left um, that might be hard to do. So, yeah, I think I think you probably will see it more tacked to the center just because um, of those how critical those states are in terms of winning yeah. the general election. Very good. Let me cancel. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.